So we'll start from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's uh, great to be with you again this week. And very encouraging, let me say, to see pictures of the launch six years ago and to know that I haven't aged at all. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. You're supposed to nod at this point. Uh, uh, there's an outline in the leaflet so you can follow along as we look at this passage. It'd be good to have it open in front of you. I'm going to pray that... Uh, uh, porker won't interrupt and uh, that we'll be able to hear God speak to us as we consider his word together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, you speak clearly to us. And Father, we pray you'll help us as we wrestle with this passage. We know there are, there are things in it where for 21st century people uh, in this particular culture 
uh, they angle across some presuppositions we have. Help us, though, to not be distracted at one level by that, but to actually understand what you're saying to us here, uh, to hear your word into our, our thinking, our hearts, our lives, so that we'll continue to be shaped by you primarily. Father, we ask that in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Uh, Sue and I live directly opposite a childcare centre. What that means is that uh, on a fairly regular base, basis, uh, the, the parking in our street is highly limited. Right? It's normally the street's chock-a-block full of cars, uh, staff during the day, people coming and going, and jockeying for positions in, other, in, a, in order to actually drop off their kids. Now, last week, I was, uh, went out to my car to back out into the street, and uh, one of the workers, I recognise the car, had parked across our driveway. Uh, and in fact, the car must have been there for a couple of hours. Now, it wasn't completely blocking the driveway. It was only about you know, a third of the way across the driveway. And I figured with some careful angling of my vehicle, I could probably, probably, you know, get past, I figured. Now, I don't, how do you feel when people do that, right, uh, in your driveway? What do you think a pastor thinks when uh, <laughs> someone parks across his driveway? I'm about to give you an insight into this, uh, a sanitised insight, insight, no doubt, but, but nonetheless. Uh, I was um, irritated. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I had different thoughts about what I could do running through my head. Let down tyres on car. <laughs> uh, report to council. A fine. That should solve the problem. And then, as I reflected on these different options and other possibilities, uh, I was reminded that just before I got in my car, I'd been reading 1 Peter chapter 2 and preparing for this Sunday. How can I live a good life among the pagans, in this case the unbelievers in the childcare centre across the road? That's the, um, the opening verses that we pick up on here in 1 Peter chapter 2. But I suspect you find yourself wrestling with this issue. How do you live a good life among unbelievers around you in all sorts of different forums and situations? The unbelievers that I'm connecting with or who observe me on a regular basis, uh, do they see Christ in me? Or do I somehow blend in so much they don't even know I'm a believer? Uh, in the work context, uh, do they see me as angular or a good witness for the sake of Christ? Uh, there are lots of different situations where uh, I wonder, how am I commending the gospel and am I doing it in the most effective way possible? If you've got a window into that sort of issue in your own life, then in a sense you have a window into this particular passage that we're looking at today. Remember, Peter is writing to uh, first century Christians. They're a minority group in the culture that they're, they're in. Probably they were viewed uh, suspiciously. Uh, they were uh, a small group who worshipped a king called Jesus and not the emperor, the Roman emperor, who was regarded as a deity in that culture. Something of a threat in terms of the context. Uh, chapter 1, we've looked at, talks about the, the amazing privileges of being a Christian. Then last week in chapter 2, we saw the way in which our identity is shaped 
uh, by what Jesus has done for us, our identity as ministers of the gospel and the way in which we serve Jesus in this world. When we get to chapter 2, verse 11, the focus shifts. Um, Not the essential message, but the, the angle of it changes slightly. And it moves to how we relate to an unbelieving world and to unbelievers. Pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, Aliens and Strangers picks up on the idea that's been launched in verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, temporary residence in an unbelieving world, our hope is in heaven, that sort of picture. Uh, aliens and Strangers also captures that sense of hostility towards believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this letter, that's clearly at least verbal. So you pick that up in the verses we just read. They accuse you of doing wrong. And that idea of accusation or speaking against believers rings like a bell, actually, as you go through this letter. They will see your good deeds. Uh, There's a sense in which we're meant to mirror the generosity and mercy and grace of God. And that's tied in with the fact that submission or respect, as we heard in the kids' talk, that sense of treating people properly especially those who have a level of authority over us. Uh, That's the sort of bell that's being rung here. That we might glorify, that they might glorify God on the day he visits us. That is, at the return of Jesus, I take it the great hope is that unbelievers have actually been uh, giving us a hard time, have been accusing us of doing wrong, will now be at a point where they've put their trust in Jesus and they glorify God when he returns. There's been that transition in their life. That's the great hope in this um, section. What Peter does is, uh, from verse 12 following, he develops three case studies, if you like, on how to actually put these principles into practice in everyday sort of life. But let me say two of them are immediately distracting to a modern mind. And you would have picked them up as you were listening to them. That is, we're talking about slavery and wives submitting to husbands. This is not 21st century PC. And, uh, and those of us, as we listen into the Bible this morning, inevitably will find ourselves um, uh, taken off on tangents in relation to those sort of issues. What I want you to do, if you possibly can, is keep in mind verses 11 and 12. That is, remember the controlling verses as we get into the examples and try not to be distracted by the particular examples that are given but the way in which those examples fit with the controlling ideas okay aliens and strangers um, doing good deeds commending the gospel to outsiders and unbelievers how do these examples fit with that sort of idea okay let's let's tackle each of the the illustrations that comes up, uh, although we can only do it you know, relatively briefly. Firstly, submission to those who have authority over you, verses 13 to 17. 
I think if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you forget how destabilizing becoming a Christian, uh, the effect that that can have on the people around you, that you choose to follow Christ. Uh, Let me give you an example, not particularly tied to this illustration. When I became a Christian, I was about 20 years of age. And it had a fairly radical effect on the way in which I was living my life. And I remember at one point, my parents sitting me down and saying they were terribly worried about what had happened to me. That I'd gone all religious and there'd been all these changes in my life that they felt really uncomfortable with. They said, for example, you've even stopped going out and getting drunk. You know? And I thought, really? You know, like it seems an odd thing for parents to be worried about that that had stopped. But do you understand why they were saying it? They, they just didn't... It didn't they couldn't work out what was going on. Their son had changed and they weren't quite sure what that meant for them at this point in time. That destabilising effect, uh, I think, occurs in the life of every person who becomes a believer and it affects all the relationships they have around them. Now, in the first century AD, uh, Christianity was probably seen as a destabilising, even subversive sort of element in the empire. Uh, As I said, allegiance to King Jesus rather than to the Roman emperor on the throne. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority among men. And he goes on and says, for example, kings and, and governors. Why submit to those authorities that I take it were not believing authorities? Did you pick up the motivation? Verse 13, it's for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, it's because it's God's will. Verse 16, because you are servants of God. Verse 17, because you fear God. You bring yourself under the government of those who are appointed in authority because you want to honour God. That's the first and foremost priority. And if we do... This is what happens, verse 15. It will, and I think this is a general statement, not an absolute rule. Uh, Verse 15. You will silence the talk of foolish men. That is, your behaviour will somehow muzzle the mistruths and misunderstandings, misapprehensions about who you are as a follower of Jesus by operating in this way. That's the principle. Now, what, what does that look like today? I mean, I'll just take a quick vote. Christians in our society generally are seen as very subversive forces. Yes or no? Yes? No. <laughs> we, we are, we're the conservatives in our culture. Uh, by, by its nature, that's the way in which we... I mean, we're even now seeing Christians uh, very politically active in the political processes to try and influence in different directions. So what does it mean to submit to rulers, those who have that sort of um, civil, if you like, authority over us? Australians, by their very nature, I think, are extraordinarily cynical when it comes to our politicians or those who operate with that level of power in our community. And you might say to me, yeah, but we've got good reason to be, you know. 
It's not a Christian attitude. That is, if we're seeking to honour God, we won't be cynical or dismissive or undermining of those who have been placed there by God himself. That is, does God rule heaven and earth? Is he the one in ultimate authority? We will demonstrate by our attitudes a different approach, a different approach when it comes to uh, laws of the land, uh, the way we function in our cars, uh, the way we reflect on taxation, uh, the way we express our attitude towards police in our community who have an extraordinarily tough job. Uh, we will model that sort of behaviour. But I think the principle here, uh, it's just helpful to reflect on it. This is a, a development of what's actually here in the text. But how is it that we uh, reflect on the way in which we can have impact in our local communities? See, how do we engage uh, to actually do good deeds that undermine people's wrong thoughts about who we are as followers of Jesus? How do we connect into school communities or reflect on the social needs that we observe in our society or voluntary organisations that have been set up to serve in our community situation? How as believers are we identified as those who are so good for the communities that we dwell in? And people are so thankful because we play our part and we're involved. So I reckon here's the danger. Uh, the danger is that uh, we follow the lead of our community and pe different people across our community belong to different social or um, community groups in different ways. Right? There's you know, CFS or school groups, councils or uh, book reading clubs or yeah, there's lots of different things that operate. And we belong to a church community. See, but that's not the way this passage operates. This is not the optional community group that we belong to. We belong to the family of God and we want to work out how we do good in the community around us, not for its own sake so much, but to honour God and to explode the balloons of mis misconception that people have about who we are. And that won't happen unless we actually engage with those around us. People will observe who we are. That's why it says, I think, in this section, uh, we're to love the brotherhood of believers. You know, we, we will have impact by the way in which we live. But how do we connect with and bless the unbelieving world around us? That's the sort of core idea that I think is sitting here. Now, the question that normally comes up uh, with this sort of passage is, are there limits on our submission to those with authority? Are there boundaries that we cannot go past, uh, given the sort of statement that's here? And there are. Notice in verse 17 what it says. Fear God, honour the king. There's different levels or grades of allegiance that are being spelt out here. The king is not God, therefore respect the king. There is only one God, fear God. God. That is, your allegiance to God himself will always trump your allegiance to any 
anyone in society or uh, power in our land. Uh, you see that in the scriptures with, say, Daniel or the apostles when they appear in, uh, I think it's Acts 4 or Acts 5, uh, before the, the governing authorities, and they say, well, you've got to work out, should we obey you or obey God? What do you think? It's very clear what they should do. And I think today, some of those same sort of issues will come up for various ones of us in different contexts. Uh, traditionally, we've seen doctors have to wrestle with this on the uh, bioethical front or in the area of abortion. They have to make conscience issues before God about a number of those sort of issues. Uh, we'll see it, I think, for people like me and Stephen, um, when it comes to same-sex marriages, if laws get passed that require us, if we hold that sort of government authority, to exercise it in that way, it'll be an impossibility for us to exercise it in that manner. There'll be other ways in which we'll always have to be making that sort of assessment. Submit uh, to the ruling authorities. The second case study picks up on masters and slaves, verses 18 through 25. Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect. Now, uh, while not explicitly stated in this section, verses 11 and 12 provide the controlling context. Uh, that is, that same sort of idea of outsiders and the way we live, doing good deeds, commending the gospel. But when we come to this example, our modern mind, our Christian mind as well, says, why doesn't Peter argue for the abolition of slavery? How come he doesn't do that? I mean, at least at one other point in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul does allude to grabbing your freedom if you're a slave when you can. Why doesn't Peter go there? Different ones have suggested reasons. Uh, for example, a number of the commentators talk about the, the different nature of slavery in the first century context. Uh, we have uh, African-American uh, sort of concepts in mind, modern slavery, whereas in the first century it was non-racial. Uh, it was not necessarily permanent in terms of slavery. It was the economic currency, in effect, of the Roman Empire, so half the empire were slaves. It's just the way in which the culture was structured. And most often they were treated like hired servants uh, rather than sort of bond slave owned by other people. However, let me say there was still significant abuse. And that's obviously what's being referred to in this context. I don't think that is the reason for diminishing uh, the place of slavery or the reason why it's not attacked, actually, in this passage. Why isn't Peter anti-slavery? Well, because he thinks there's something more important. Verse 19, bear up under unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. See, the question is, how do believing slaves obey and glorify God, particularly when it comes to commending the gospel to unbelieving masters? I think that's the focus here. And the example of Jesus is cited in verse 23. They hurled insults at him. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, is this an argument saying Jesus suffered, therefore slaves should? I mean, you could possibly read it that way. Um, 
Does our suffering as believers somehow give God joy, as if he enjoys the fact that members of his family suffer? And what, what's actually going on here? Notice verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, we know that Christ suffered for our sins to provide forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Obviously, that's not the example he left, as if we can do that same thing and suffer and die for the sins, ours or, or anyone else's. We can't do that. Slaves can't do it. We can't do it. So what, what sense an example? Well, I think the example follows in this way. Slaves willingly suffer if it means they can commend the gospel to their unbelieving masters. I think at least that is going on here. And in the 21st century, let me say, we are to willingly suffer to suck it up in order to commend the gospel to others. We're prepared to pay a price for the sake of others being encouraged and being commended in the gospel. What I'm saying is it's not about my rights, my authority, my power, but how to commend Jesus. Now, this is really countercultural. Right? You're in a, an employment situation and your boss rips you off. Everything in our culture and society, our industrial regulations and rules and everything like that says, insist on your rights, make sure you get your rights. Right? Now, I'm, I'm not against us being treated properly as employees, don't get me wrong. But you understand for the believer... That isn't our priority. Our priority in that situation is how do we conduct ourselves in such a way that we both honour God and commend the gospel to our unbelieving boss. That may mean actually insisting on your rights, but it may not be as well. And it may not be the way in which you conduct yourself. Now let me change the lens, okay? This week, this last week just gone, was the driveway mine? Yes, it was my driveway that that car parked across. Did I have a right to use my driveway? Yes. Did the car of the child centre worker, did that car have a right to be across my driveway? No. Right? You understand I was very clear about my rights in this situation. Right? And I had that running through my head on a fairly continuous loop. Uh, but as I say, fortunately, and I mean within minutes of getting into the car, I'd been reading 1 Peter 2. And preparing for this Sunday, I thought, maybe God's speaking to me at this point about how I should conduct myself. No, probably not. No, no, I didn't do that. Right? But it, it was that sort of situation. So I thought, well, what do I do? That is, I think the people in the childcare centre, most of them probably are unbelievers. I don't really know. How do I commend the gospel to them? I thought, well, here's my nature. Uh, I think I can get my car passed. I'll just forget about it and go to work. I thought that actually doesn't achieve much at all, really, except to show I'm a skillful driver. Uh, <laughs> you know. So I went across to the childcare centre and I said, look, it, it's not a big deal, but actually it's a bit tricky for me to get my car 
out of my driveway because one of, one of the people I think who works here is probably parked across it. And it, let me say, not a big deal, but I'd really appreciate it if you know, the car could be moved uh, at, you know, at some point. That would really be helpful. And I tried to do it calmly, graciously, warmly. Because I've got a fair idea they know I'm a minister. <laughs> uh, just, you know, I, I suspect they do. And I thought if I actually interact in a gracious way, not doing my na-na, not insisting on my rights, not, then probably that's the best way I can commend the gospel in that particular situation. I don't know if I got it right. Uh, see, that's the sort of issue that I think we need to think about as we reflect on the nature of the way in which the principles here operate in our lives. Okay, we come to the third example, uh, believing wives, submitting, and particularly with unbelieving husbands. And at this point, I look at my watch and I go, my goodness, time slipped past. Probably, Stephen, it's time to stop. Is that right? Uh, uh, but the controversial verses, aren't they? As I say, particularly in 21st century Australia, Verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Same? Same way. I think the example that's immediately gone has been, at least in reference to slaves and masters, but for most of us, this is not a convincing analogy. Wives, submit to your husbands just like slaves submit to their masters. Probably we're not doing any better in a 21st century context at this point by emphasising that. But that's the sort of link that's being made. Let me say this passage is not saying husbands are superior, husbands dominate your wives, uh, but nor is it just, I think, a socially conditioned instruction based around, 20, uh, around first century culture. And I say that because if you look at other passages in the New Testament, you get a picture of how this is put together. Ephesians 5, Titus 2, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2. Remember the controlling verse. Good lives among the pagans so they might glorify God. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Wives are asked to submit so that husbands, if any of them don't believe the word, unbelievers may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. How do wives, believing wives, commend the gospel to their unbelieving husbands? Well, by willingly choosing a course of action so that husbands can be effectively evangelised, even if it's at cost to themselves, because they willingly pay that cost for the sake of their unbelieving spouse, so that that person might hear and respond to the gospel. That is the principle. And what we're talking about here is the impact of a godly life. We're not talking about bowing and scraping. Right? Verse 4, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. We're talking about women whose hope is in heaven. Women who are strangers in this world and who invest not in the externals that are passing away, not the outward beauty that's going to fade or jewellery or houses or overseas travel or... No, no, no. They invest in soaring through the heavenly realms uh, 
They know their hope is there. Character, love, care, service. We're not talking so much about being pleasant and being easy to live with. That may be the case. What we are talking about is a woman whose hope is in the Lord Jesus and heaven. A woman who lives in God's sight with those convictions. And let me say, I take it that when it comes to verse 7 and husbands are addressed, what we have is exactly the flip side of the same thing. Husbands demonstrating gracious respect for their spouses so that they might commend the gospel to them as well. It's not elaborated in as much detail, but it's there as well. Now, how does this directly affect us? Uh, For some of us, it will be that we're in households where uh, there is a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And I think the principle here is primarily, what do I do, how do I live that commends the gospel to my unbelieving spouse? How do I make that a priority? But I think the principle here is probably appropriate in any close relationship. Uh, Not the submission aspect of it necessarily, because we're not all necessarily tied in those sort of relationships. But how do we commend it to people who are close? Like believing children with unbelieving parents. How does that work? When I became a Christian, age 20, I was really angry right, that my parents had misled me about spiritual things for 20 years and also deeply concerned that they weren't believers and needed to hear the gospel. So I went home and I explained very clearly why they had been living for folly and stupidity for over 50 years now and they should repent and believe the gospel, right? They warmly responded to their 20-year-old university student son who was still living on their dime, uh, telling them how they'd been wasting their lives. They thought it was wonderful that I would have the courage to tell them in this way. Do you understand? It just just didn't work. (laughs) It wasn't wise. It wasn't godly. It showed no respect for them and their position in relation to me. And what I constantly tell people who are in the same position who get converted now is to work out how you demonstrate marvellous respect and love and care for your parents in that situation uh, so that they will see that the changes that God has brought about in your life are wonderful changes that attract them to the gospel. I'm just saying don't speak about the gospel. But think about how you live in a way that does commend it. It's the same when you've got siblings who are unbelievers uh, or anyone who's actually close to you. Uh, The power of a life given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a passage, at least in significant part, about the way in which good living commends the gospel. And also, I guess, about the limits of the way in which that occurs. People will never be converted by your good living. You understand that's definitionally impossible. No one will ever be, they'll never become a Christian because of your good life. The only way that can happen is through the grace and mercy of God through the gospel, not through the good living of you. But godly living is often 
a critical groundwork so that people can be drawn in and want to hear the gospel so that misconceptions about God, uh, that clutter can be moved away. So I guess here's the question I wouldn't mind asking and getting you to think about for yourself. As you reflect on your unbelieving friends or your unbelieving family, if I was able to sit down one-on-one with them when you weren't present, secret, if I was able to sit down and say, you know, X, they're a Christian, um, what do you think about them? Would these be the sort of comments I get back? You know, they always are willing to put themselves out for me because they want the very best for me, even if it costs them. Or maybe some of us here who have children who've wandered away from the faith. Would those unbelieving children, uh, would they say about you, I know they don't agree with the choices I've made, or the convictions that I currently have. But you know, I never, ever doubt their love for me. I actually couldn't want for better parents. Or maybe at work, uh, with unbelieving colleagues, and when the pressure's on, would they say about you, I know they're a Christian, Because even when the pressure's on, they don't compromise their convictions, but they always do it with extraordinary grace and generosity for others, even those who don't agree with them. Or when they observe you being ripped off or hurt in different situations and taken advantage of, would this be their comment? When I see that happening, when people give them a hard time, even for their faith, or rip them off, or, or pull them down, what I notice about them is this. Their instinct is not to pay back or just to cut themselves off from the relationship. They're always willing to forgive, not to dwell on the hurt that they've received, and they always want to keep maintaining the relationship. How would the, the unbelievers in your lives, how would they respond to the way in which you live in a way to commend the gospel? Friends, uh, can I encourage you not to underestimate the impact of a good life that is centred on Honouring and pleasing God. Don't forget the power of that as you interact with the people around you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word and and we thank you that the principles here in this section are so clear, even if the uh, the application is uh, not necessarily directly in our particular context. Father, we pray that uh, we will be people who live as your strangers in this world with our hope set on heaven, conscious of how we honour you by our lives and therefore how we 
uh, commend the gospel by good deeds and attitudes and behaviours in relation to those we interact with. Now, Father, we pray we'll do that among the household of believers, that we'll keep working that out together. But we particularly pray that you'll help us to do that in the face of an unbelieving world uh, that doesn't get the gospel and has many misconceptions and misunderstandings about what makes us tick. Help us to be gracious, loving, continue to commend the gospel to them and to one of you in the process. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.